Thank you. I'm so sorry. It, it won't be on Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, her talk won't be on. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's going to be on Freud, Dali, and the myth of the crazy artist, because I knew that Darian was going to talk a lot about dreams. So I'm not going to do what Darian's going to do. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I wanted to try and talk about Dali's craziness and, and what it might mean to be a crazy artist, at least in his case. And, and maybe more about what sort of what it is to be a crazy artist, but um, and I also wanted to talk a bit about his kind of fandom, his amazing hero worship of Freud, and the part that that might have played um, in both the, the staging and also the stabilisation <laughs> of his um, madness, just to call it that for now. But and, and also how closely kind of tied together the the staging and the stabilisation might be. So, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to look at the way in which it seems maybe Dali used art, love, and psychoanalysis to put together his own kind of really ingenious cure. Um, and I'm sure you could probably add into that triangle of things money and fame too, but maybe for now they can go under the kind of art heading. <laughs> but, um, all, but I know they also intersect with the love heading, I guess. It's kind of complicated... Venn diagram, or for uh, Lacanians, maybe a Borromean knot, but with, with extra stuff, because that's what mad people need. Um, so I'll be kind of psychobiographizing, um, diagnosing historic figures, <laughs> all that stuff you're not allowed to do. But um, I think I, I won't be extrapolating much, because Dali is nothing that Dali doesn't say about himself. Um, so to talk a little bit about the psychoanalytic part of the cure first, um, as I think Dawn said, um, the way he uses psychoanalysis has got nothing to do with um, the sorts of things that go on in, in kind of clinical psychoanalysis, um, which might seem very kind of pedestrian compared with what he's doing with Freud's thinking. Um, so Dali almost can't speak highly enough of Freud. He says all these really kind of extravagant things like, the only difference between immortal Greece and the present time is Sigmund Freud. <laughs> who discovered that the human body, purely neoplatonic in the Greek age, is full of secret drawers which only psychoanalysis is capable of opening. So that's uh, high praise. Um, or when later on, I don't, is this in the late 30s, early 40s? That, anyway, when everybody starts rowing, the surrealists call him in for a kind of crisis meeting and he pretends to be ill to discuss his worrying interest in Hitler. Um, and he sort of feels he can prove to them Oh, definitely to himself, that his depictions of Hitler couldn't possibly have anything to do with being any kind of sympathiser because Hitler chased Freud out of Germany and it's self-evident to anyone who knows Dali that um, you know, an enemy of Freud's is an enemy of his and that's the end of it. So Dali is, is sort of literally crazy about Freud. It's all over the place in his writing. Um, but looking at his literary output for sure and, and maybe his paintings too, he's a very idiosyncratic reader of Freud. But what you could say he kind of lacks, if you want to put it that way, in, in a kind of cool, systematic understanding, he definitely makes up for in zeal and invention. And so in that sense, maybe he has something in common with that other kind of Catholic evangelical reader of Freud, um, Jacques Lacan, who he hung out with in the years before that single important meeting with Freud. Um, and who he didn't seem to ide idealise or idolise particularly at all. He thought, you know, Lacan's a very interesting guy, but um, Freud is God. Um, 
so, and uh, Dali also read other writers in Freud's circle, like Otto Rank and Marie Bonaparte. He kind of read around psychoanalysis. Um, and he begins this, the uh, second chapter of the first autobiography, talking about Rank's idea of birth trauma. Um, so he says, I propo propose to begin the book of my secret life at its real and authentic beginning, namely with the memories, so rare and liquid, which I've preserved of that intrauterine life and which, I'll undoubtedly, uh, which will undoubtedly be the first of this kind in the world since the beginning of literary history. <laughs> so he's going to describe his experience in the womb, yeah, like nobody else has ever done before. So yeah, typically kind of meek and self-effacing. Um, and so he hopes with this impeccably articulated memory to maybe jog the recall of his readers so that we too can be transported back to that moment in our own lives. He'll, he'll sort of open a door for us. Um, but he also says that everything he remembers about his own experience of being in the womb has been confirmed by Otto Rank kind of scientifically. So, so he gives this really graphic description of being in the womb. It's like he's going to punch his mum's ovaries and all, the, all this stuff that he remembers. I don't know how, um, I don't know, biologically um, viable it is. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's got some kind of picture which is very clear to him. Um, and so, and he says Rank confirms it. So it's like Dali, you know, has this experience. He thinks of it. Rank can confirm it because you know he knows about that kind of stuff, and everybody else can get into it if if they're able. So there's this kind of pyramid, with ordinary people at the bottom, regular psychoanalysts next, Dali, and then Freud at the top, maybe joined by Raphael. So Freud for Dali is someone really very elevated and one of the few people he only ever seems to speak about respectfully. And even Picasso, who he had this sort of um, intense thing with and who he paid one of his kind of fan visits to, ends up being kind of downgraded and pilloried in words and paintings, um, but, but not Freud. So um, in his two autobiographies, Dali portrays himself as something like a kind of wild, but obviously very brilliant um, autodidact. So he wasn't interested, apparently, in most of the things that the teachers tried to tell him at school. But um, occasionally, they'd say something that would grab him. And if they said something that would grab him, it would really grab him, and he would just go nuts about it. Um, and then later on, he dropped out of his art training quite near the end because he didn't want to do the... Um, the sort of theoretical part of the, the test. Um, and he thought there was nobody at his art school who was able to kind of adequately, adequately understand um, his theoretical ideas. Um, which, yeah, well, as you say, if you read essays like that, the, um, the Millet essay, they're very hard to understand and it's quite likely that <laughs> there wasn't anyone there able to follow. But, um, so, and so he was seen in a way, like by his dad, apparently as a bit of a kind of flake and a weird kid, like after he leaves home, there's this famous, maybe slightly apocryphal quote, but his father said, don't worry, he's not at all practically minded, and he can't even buy a cinema ticket. In a week, at the most, he'll be back in Figueras, covered in lice and begging for forgiveness, begging my forgiveness. So the, the dad's pretty kind of damning of him, but also um, completely wrong. But... Um, so by the time the Surrealists kind of famously come to sort of hunt Dali down in 1929, he's already very immersed in his own passionate 
self-taught readings of psychoanalysis. And he'd some people date his kind of initial meetings with Lacan to 1929, but I think it's not very clear when it happened. But it seems to have been during, um, maybe during Lacan's PhD when he's doing all his research on paranoia, but possibly not as early as 1929. But um, anyway, so he's, he's immersed in reading Freud mainly, and everything that he seems to be kind of interested in, sort of, I don't know, blood, shit, perverse sexual practices, it's all there. So psychoanalysis maybe seems like a kind of island of sanity where everything that isn't normally allowed, at least is allowed, at least to kind of speak and think about. And this thing of allowed and not allowed seems to come up a lot in his life and his work. And so the surrealists are like, oh, that painting's a bit disgusting, or what if, why have you put Lenin's face there? Apparently they tried to sort of get rid of one of his paintings in an exhibition, the Hitler stuff. He, he's always kind of in trouble for what he puts in his work. Um, and so, I, I don't know, but maybe the message of psychoanalysis is, is quite soothing. It's like, well, don't worry if you feel fucked up, confused, you're into things that everybody else seems to agree are really terrible. You're human, and that's what humans are like, and all those forbidden things are there in all people. Um, in his autobiographical writings, you see this kind of relentless psychoanalytic framing of his experiences almost as if Freud's writings can kind of hold the world in place somehow or make a certain sense of it. So it's, it's almost the opposite um, response to Freudian thinking that so many commentators seem to describe. It's like, um, oh my God, you know, Freud tells us that we are not at all who we thought we were, whereas the thing Dali seems to describe is something more like a homecoming. It's like, oh my God, thank God somebody else knows it's all about this. So however disturbing things might seem, at least they're psychoanalyzable. So, you know, your dad, your school, everybody might tell you you're stupid and horrible. But there's, there's this very intelligent set of theories that are all about the stuff that you're all about. So there's, there's a kind of match or a you know, framework in the world for you. Um, and in a way, it almost brings to mind little Hans's idea in you know, Freud's famous case of, of the professor. There's this man in the background who, who knows about and can kind of organize ideas and feelings in the way that maybe your dad can't. Um, and maybe we can come back to the dad a little bit shortly. But first, um, a bit about the love part of the cure, which began during this kind of surrealist outreach project when um, Dali meets Gala. Um, and after one of the first meetings, apparently, he refers to her as his um, gradiva. Um, so it's this typical kind of Dali-esque Freudian framing of experience. So of course, you know, the woman that he loves is going to be a character drawn from the Freudian realm. Um, and he'd apparently just read the Jensen's novella and Freud's commentary on it. And he writes later, she was destined to be my gradiva, she who advances my victory, my wife, but for this, she had to cure me, and she did, <laughs> which is good. Um, so at the time, he was 25, and it seemed by his own account that he definitely needed a cure by something, by kind of whatever. Um, so he describes himself being kind of extremely, I don't know what to call it, edgy. Um, he himself <laughs> calls it um, hysteria, he refers to him self as a hysteric, but I'm not sure that according to the Freudian theory and certainly the Lacanian theory of hysteria, um, 
maybe he doesn't quite fit that bill. And I don't know how it was phrased this morning, but um, yeah, some people might, might just be inclined to call it um, mad. <laughs> but um, so any time Gala came anywhere near him, bearing in mind that she was married and he hardly knew her, he'd convulse with uncontrollable laughter and sometimes even fall on the floor. So she famously takes him for a walk with the intention of finding out on behalf of the other surrealists whether he's coprophagic, partly because of this painting that he did. Um, and so he tells her, definitely no way, he's not, not into that. Um, and, but on the walk, he kind of tries to work his way up to declaring love to her or putting his arm around her waist or doing something to register his feelings with her. But he, he can't, he can't, doesn't know how to do it. So instead, she grabs his hand um, and when she grabs his hand, he starts to just howl with laughter. Um, and he says, instead of being wounded by my laughter, Gala felt elated by it. For with an effort which must have been superhuman, she succeeded again in pressing my hand even harder than before, instead of dropping it with disdain, as anyone else would have done. And with her medium-like intuition, as yeah, you say, she's, she's kind of psychic, whatever, um, she understood the exact meaning of my laughter, so inexplicable to everyone else. And so he goes on to describe this kind of fanatical, cataclysmic, terrifying cackling, which ends up with him in a heap on the floor, at which point she apparently says, my little boy, we shall never leave each other. So, um, yeah, that's not eatable at all. Um, so nine, nine years earlier, when he was 16, he'd lost his mum, who he apparently adored, um, and he'd read quite enough psychoanalysis to see Gala, who's 10 years older than him, as a mum replacement. Um, and he doesn't appear to be bothered by the Oedipal stuff at all. So unlike a kind of regular neurotic person, hysteric maybe, Dali doesn't appear to have a kind of Freudian unconscious in the sense of having huge swathes of drives and wishes and associations that he can't allow himself to access directly, you know, and therefore has to convert into aggression or depression or, you know, dreams or whatever. Um, it seems as though he can make all the Freudian connections he likes without too much trouble, because for him, they're somehow not so subject to repression, which in a way could be, uh, and yes, certainly in Lacanian theory, one of the definitions or indicators of madness. So he could be openly interested in, in shit with no kind of layering or diversion, want to masturbate in front of people, basically marry his mum without apparent guilt or shame, which is all part of the huge so social service, I'd say, that he and other kind of crazy public figures might perform. So Gala then takes him on as someone who clearly needed a great deal of kind of care and looking after, although she's very far from kind of straightforwardly mumsy and she's yeah, has loads of affairs and is evidently quite kind of kinky. Um, and you, yeah, you can hear lots about that in Brian Sewell's really gossipy documentary from the 1970s. But, um, and in that, there's a clip, I think, from one of these American TV shows maybe, where Dali is very clear that he has Gala to thank for his incredible success. And, and not just because she kind of got out there and acted as his agent, but more because she had this absolute faith in him. So in spite of his really, you know, I, I don't know, charming but relentless, extravagant boasting, Dali also speaks a lot about being full of self-doubt and to feel almost totally useless. 
So having Gala's loving, accepting, uncritical gaze on him um, maybe could have acted as a kind of immaterial splint, enabling him to function rather than fracture in, in sort of the, yeah, the ways that Darian referred to earlier. So in terms of stabilizing madness or preventing it in the first place, psychoanalysts talk a great deal about the architecture of one's early attachments and identifications. So having a primary carer, sometimes known as a mother for convenience sake, often it is a woman, um, and a secondary primary carer, uh, sorry, and a secondary carer who might be called a father, who can step in to separate you from your mum and who, with whom you might want to identify, provides a kind of stable triangle around which you can elaborate a functional neurotic psyche. But um, obviously not all families are perfect. Um, and Dali's dad seems to be the kind of blame hound in his family um, <coughs> for all sorts of reasons, and um, yeah, some of which are maybe mythical, some of which are historical, but all this having affairs, sleeping with prostitutes, getting venereal diseases, and I wasn't sure how much this would have been spoken about already, but this replacement child idea, apparently the, the father had some guilt that it was his um, a disease that he brought into the family due to his sexual practices that had caused the death of the baby. Um, and, and because of that, apparently, he would show Dali kind of disgusting pictures of, of diseased bodies, bodies diseased by, uh, I don't know, syphilis and whatever. So it's like the, the Pollock-style dad pissing on a rock. It's sort of, yeah, that the Dali, from a young age, gets shown these hideous images as a kind of deterrent, but um, maybe he did something very interesting with that. Um, so it seems that the, you know, the dad in Dali's story isn't so well positioned to be this comforting, stabilizing, triangulating figure. That's the story Dali seems to tell. But um, you know, a person can get some mileage out of simply idealizing their mum and using the maternal gaze to, to reify the mirror image, um, thereby creating a less kind of architecturally sound, but um, maybe nonetheless worth trying, triangle out of the mum, the child, and the ideal ego or the specular image. So instead of a triangle made out of three live humans, you get a triangle made out of two people and an image. So if when Gala met Dali, he was kind of practically exploding or imploding or definitely not in a calm state, perhaps she could help to hold something in place for him by having complete and utter faith in the kind of shining image of himself as a successful genius. So it's like a mum supporting the image of her child in the mirror. So it's a bit less kind of normy than the full Oedipal setup, but sometimes it uh, has been known to work. But um, So you have this cure by psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic theory, whatever, that um, you know, psychoanalysis makes sense of certain disturbing phenomena. Um, and then a cure by love that involves a kind of adoring maternal gaze that guarantees your psychic and bodily integrity. Um, and then last of all, a, a cure by art. Um, and this isn't the sort of Freudian theory of sublimation, but more this um, cure by performing your madness as a crazy artist. So alongside his overwhelming, apparently, anxiety, phobia, um, grasshoppers, obsessions, 
Um, Dali also had the archetypally mad, grandiose sense that, that he's a genius and a chosen person, kind of marked out from the rest of society, who has special access to mystical truths and all that stuff. So like a lot of artists, um, he seems to have had a kind of brilliantly tricky approach to his own megalomanic insanity. So rather than simply kind of suffering it or getting stuck with a delusional idea that nobody else is going to buy into, like, you know, the, I don't know, the classic ones, the, the idea that you can stop the sun or that, you know, if you do this thing or you pick this thing up or you go there, you'll save the whole of humanity, things <laughs> that other people are, yeah, might doubt. Um, Dali's uh, megalomania crystallizes around the idea of his being a genius artist savant. Um, and the good thing about that form of madness is that if you're really brilliant at painting or composing music or writing, whatever, then lots of people will come to support your delusion, um, not just your girlfriend, and it won't be a delusion anymore. Um, so as Dali himself puts it, if you act the genius, you'll be one. Or the quote that's on the wall in the show, whatever it is, the only difference between Dali and a madman is that Dali is not mad. Um, he refers to himself in the third person, that's him. Um, <laughs> but in clinical work, I'm sure lots of you know, especially if you work in hospitals, you come across plenty of people who've kind of got the first part of that scheme covered, but they haven't got the second one, and they're always looking for the thing. They're going to be a, you know, a, a poet or a rapper or a something, and then everything will, will be all right. Um, so stabilizing madness by performing madness is a really brilliant idea, and art is a really good arena in which to pull it off. Um, so people will accept it and even admire it as long as your productions are kind of good enough to justify the obvious difficulties that are going to come with um, dealing with you. So it's almost like you can multiply this approving maternal gaze. You can be reified you know, a million times over by people who will invest <coughs> in this idea. Um, and, yeah, so lots of people seem to agree, artists aren't supposed to be ordinary. Um, and Dali's mode of performing madness is, is really kind of very brilliant and multi-layered, if that's really what it is. Um, you can't tell like, sort of whether he's acting, if you watch these amazing films of him speaking. It's like he's, he's sort of being silly, it's a performance. But he's also a kind of connoisseur of madness, you know, he's read all about it completely fascinated by it, even if his readings are quite sort of flamboyant and romantic. So he can reproduce an appearance of madness in the most entertaining way, but also a way that doesn't exactly mean he's not mad. So in 1929, he's in quite a sort of sticky personal situation. He, he seems to need to get away from his family home. He doesn't want to hang out with that dad for the rest of his life. Um, probably not going to do it by getting a job. Um, so, you know, si the idea of sitting around the house in immense psychic pain, needing economic support and suffering is, is just terrible. So he needs to be an artist or he's going to end up in hospital, which is something that, that lots and lots of artists seem to describe. So he sets out to become an artist, but not at all in a cool way. Um, it seems that it was a big... Uh, emergency, a big subjective emergency, but thankfully at a very important point in that process, having done lots of training and work, he meets Gala and the Surrealists find him, 
Um, and also, he gets to know all about madness from Freud. So, you know, no one anymore can tell him he's this kind of disgusting, insane idiot because he's able to say, well, everyone's irrational and disgusting and a pervert. They're just too stupid to know it about themselves. So if you can bundle all those three things together, kind of gala, Freud, and being an artist in an elegant way, he'll save himself and have a pretty kind of watertight solution to the problem of his own being. Um, and so another important element in that knot of kind of helpful ideas seems to have been his invention of the paranoiac critical method. So the method dates um, precisely from that exciting, turbulent time, apparently, in, um, at least in the conquest of the irrational. Dalit dates the invention of that method to 1929. Um, although it's often said that the metamorphosis of Narcissus, painted eight years later, is the first painting to be fully conceived according to that method. So what, one of the, um, the interesting things about the method is that it involves a kind of switching on and off of madness, like an artificialization of it, or, or sort of finding something purposeful to do um, with madness that might give you a greater sense of control. So, so there's a whole business of, of kind of Dali's insanity, or whatever that is, or this thing he refers to hysteria in his diaries, and whether it's really a kind of real thing, or whether it's all part of the act of being a genius, or whether it's possible for it to be both, um, and then there's this method for producing artworks, which the other surrealists seem to like and to be able to see the point in, which involves putting your own insanity, sort of inviting it in, and really taking hold of the ideas you find there. So in clinical instances of paranoid psychosis, you're liable to make links with all sorts of things that um, so-called sane people would be unlikely to put together. So whatever it is, all the estate agents in your area are kind of conspiring with the government to humiliate you, and the bees also are helping, or whatever. But um, in, in the florid stages of psychosis, people experience this hyper-connectivity of thought where new patterns and links form and reform and morph and fracture and merge. And so Dali's method maybe could promise to harness this into an exciting mode of um, producing images or texts. And he's really at, pain, at pains to make a distinction between his method and the other surrealist beloved idea of automatism. Um, and as Dali says, uh, automatism and its inherent narcissism. Um, and it's interesting because in spite of his extravagant apparent self-love, you know, all this that every day I awake and the greatest of joys is mine, that of being Salvador Dali, um, he seems to be really down on, on the kind of ordinary narcissism of his colleagues. So they do these sort of long, tedious poetry readings, write these really boring books um, where they don't self-edit but just splurge and self-importantly imagine that whatever turgid stuff comes out of them is going to be inherently interesting. This is a caricature. <laughs> but, um, so for Dali, that's a shameful form of narcissism. And his kind of camp, self-declared type seems to him to be sort of <coughs> infinitely preferable. So it's a bit like, I don't know, the, um, David Foster Wallace, The Broom of the Symptom, where he, he begins by this discussion of first order and second order vain. So in first order vanity, you're just vain. You just wear really nice clothes and take care of yourself and show off. And, uh, uh. But in second order vanity, you are really at pains to demonstrate to other people that you're not vain. And so you do, just mask everything, be a bit scrub, be a, uh, whatever it is, never show off, but in this really demonstrative way to prove that you're, you're better than other people. 
Um, so <laughs> maybe Dali's getting it something like that. He's, he's first order, and the other one's the second order, and that's annoying. Um, so by Dali's account, with this kind of regular Breton-approved idea of automatism, the person making the associations is kind of still you, you know. Whereas with his paranoiac critical method, you're really trying to kind of get out of your head to the point where it feels like it isn't you anymore. You're being controlled by something else. So instead of it being about kind of revealing the, the marvels of your inner life, it's about ex accessing the parts of you that aren't you, the things that kind of manifest or install themselves in you, that, that register on your organism somehow. And if you can represent those things without getting in the way of them too much or trying to make sense of them, then maybe you'll end up with something not only spectacular, but also that everyone else can relate to on a gut level. So it won't be clever, but it'll capture something real, the kind of the genius of the world, of the universe, you know, of the laws of physics, the mysteries of biology and language and everything, not the, the genius of you. Um, but of course, you know, with that method then, you need someone very skilled um, at maybe drawing, painting, colour mixing, brushwork, etc., to realise this sublime vision. But that's a sort of separate problem. So one question that maybe would come out of all that is what's Dali got against narcissism all of a sudden? Um, so on the one hand, he's sort of unap unapologetically narcissistic, not to mention dandyish, heavily invested in his own image, which is very important to him. But on the other hand, he's totally disapproving of his colleagues' petty narcissism. But I suppose, yeah, other people's narcissism is annoying. Um, <laughs> but um, another question is, is whether the paranoiac critical method really is a method, um, and is it really any different to the idea of automatism, this um, earlier surrealist idea? Because isn't it just kind of rhetoric on Dali's part? He, ama he makes it appear different just by banging on and on about how completely different it is. So one thing you can say about it for sure is that it's different from the technique of free association in clinical psychoanalysis, kind of managed through time-limited, spaced-apart sessions that are kind of thought about and developed over months or years. Um, but of course, Freud's clinical technique is very much rooted in the idea of there being an unconscious, an unconscious that will only reveal itself kind of sneakily and gradually and in the face of all sorts of resistance. And Dali doesn't appear to be structured by that sort of neurotic unconscious at all. So um, he comes up with something somehow aligned with Freud's technique, but also very different. So you don't need to spend years kind of poring over stuff on the couch. You, you can just say it. <laughs> you can just show it. Um, so for Dali, that means you end up with an image whose relation to meaning is very different from, say, a religious, you know, a Renaissance image, maybe, where the meanings are sort of carefully laid out for you to observe. Maybe there's some sort of layering and sneakiness and things put in there. Maybe that's just you being paranoid. Who knows? Read Dan Brown. Um, and a hint of sublime mystery. But there are also, you know, some named characters acting out a part of a story or whatever. So, so this thing, like in the making of um, Un Chien Andalou, uh, Bunuel and Dali agreed to only sort of uh, produce images where there was no readily recognizable symbolism. Dali continues to be really obsessed with that idea, with the idea that if you drain out the layer of obvious meanings from your artworks, you'll end up with something much better. So just to um, conclude very quickly with a couple of comments on the metamorphosis of Narcissus. I'll get it up. 
turns it off. Oh, yeah, you have to switch it on. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, so it's curious that this is supposed to be the painting that really demonstrates the method, but it's a painting that's so kind of overloaded, almost, you could say, with manifest meaning, with embedded meaning, it's, it's hyper-dense. Um, so not only do you have a kind of pictorial narration of the myth, but also this very um, clear, it would seem, autobiographical reading. Um, and so, yeah, I wondered this thing, the stereoscopy thing that, that you spoke about this morning, I was really trying to see it and understand it and feel it when you look at the picture, and I never could. But that, I'm, I, I don't know if you can remember the quote, I can't remember it at all, but Dali does speak about it quite particularly, like how to look, doesn't he? And the thing that I could see that I thought was right was that, the, and that he seemed to be describing, I think, in the, it's in the um, unconscious essays, but that the figure on the left is painted that tonally it's much more similar to the background and also there seems to be a kind of blurriness like a greater kind of sfumato all over. Um, whereas the one on the right is, is cr in crisper focus and it's more contrasted with the, um, the scenery behind. And he seems to describe, when you look at the painting, rather than the figures merging, I think, that the one on the left just goes away. Like the one on the front is, is kind of more out there. And, and so if you, let your, if you stand back and let your eyes go lazy, you'll, you'll end up just seeing the one on the right and the one on the left will, be a, will disappear. Um, so I think that's what I understood from his text. Um, and so that makes very possible this the autobiographical reading in a way that the first, the first Salvador, the first Narcissus, when you look at the painting, that one can die and the other one grows up in its place. Um, and the, yeah, it's, it's sort of yeah, that's the story of Dali's existence. Um, and even the words Salvador and Narcissus have exactly the same number of syllables, but also, I only worked out by tapping it out, but they have exactly the same rhythmic value, which it doesn't sound like when you say it, but if you clap it, you can hear it. Um, so, but Dali says, in the conquest of the irrational, the fact that I myself, at the moment of painting, do not understand their meaning doesn't imply that these paintings are meaningless. On the contrary, their meaning is so deep complex, coherent, and involuntary, that it eludes the simple analysis of logical intuition. Um, and it seems that that idea almost couldn't be more true than of this painting, um, which by apparently avoiding sense, depicts such a sort of intimate, critical event in Dali's own life, even from before his birth. Something. So if he can remember being in the womb, absolutely perfectly. <laughs> in this painting, he, re he reproduces, without thinking of it at all, something from even before that. Um, and so, as he says, and kind of in total agreement with Freud, if you just let things come out in whatever form they come out in, without editing or censorship, you'll, you'll generate the exact meaning that you need to hear. So it makes total sense in a way that this should be the work that he'd want to show his absolute top hero, not just because um, it was the most recent and you always think the most recent is the best, but, um, but maybe because this painting has a really important place in his kind of intricate, desperate and brilliant self-cure. And you sort of see everything there, you know, all these Freudian ideas, the sublimation, working through processing a kind of transgenerational trauma um, and also the idea of saying what's furthest from your mind in order to reveal what you um, most need to say. So, thank you. <laughs>